Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Revelation, chapter 20, starting in verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Jesus a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him, For a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for the battle. In number, they are like the sand of the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, Once again, we're uh, glad that you've tuned in to be a part of our worship service this morning. Thank you, Brian, for that. A beautiful selection of music that reminds us of the importance of being grateful and thankful for what we have even during this season, which is so unusual. I know that I had a wonderful Thanksgiving. It was small, um, unlike many Thanksgivings we've had, but we had the traditional meal. Uh, We had a, a feast of sorts, and just like always, following the feast, I fell asleep on the couch. I don't know if it's the turkey or if it's Thanksgiving or if it's just a full stomach from a feast, but that's where I end up every single Thanksgiving, and it's a real delight. Today, we're going to focus on chapter 19 and chapter 20 of the book of Revelation. And interestingly enough, there is a feast that's mentioned in the book of Revelation in chapter 19, and uh, then following that, Uh, a reference to a battle in chapter 20. The title of my sermon, for those of you who are uh, interested in sermon titles, I borrow from Eugene Peterson's book, Reverse Thunder, and uh, the title is The Final Word on Salvation. That's what I want to focus on this morning. One thing I also want to mention is that this passage is confusing and much debated much debated throughout the history of the church. Uh, It's confusing because it's difficult to construct a timeline uh, on the events that transpire in this section of 
of the book of Revelation. It's also confusing because it's difficult to apply an exact number that makes sense of it all uh, in terms of what is called the millennium. Those who decide on a particular interpretation are emphatic about it. They don't seem to be bewildered at all. They seem to think they have it figured out. But I just want to tell you in advance, I don't think I do. Uh, And I'm going to try not to be dogmatic about the issue, though I have some opinions concerning what the issue is in the book of Revelation chapter 19 and 20. There are some major themes in chapter 19 and 20, and you can hear them unfolding um, in those verses. There's a binding and a loosing of Satan. There's a 1,000-year reign of Christ. There's a final battle with judgment and resurrection all mixed together. All of that happens in chapters 19 and 20. In order to sort this out, theologians for years have described the millennium in three different ways, or for many of us, theologians have categorized it in three different ways. One I will mention is premillennialism. Premillennialism is is this. It's just an overview. Um, Premillennialism believes that the binding of Satan is in the future, and will occur when Christ returns. They also believe that the 1,000-year reign of Christ is a literal earthly reign from Jerusalem with the saints, and that the loosing of Satan brings the millennium to a final chapter, followed by the resurrection and the final judgment, and that the new heaven and earth will be created after the millennial reign of Christ and Christ's second coming. So those of you who are in that particular perspective will recognize those broad themes in these chapters. Another perspective concerning this particular section of the book of Revelation is what is called postmillennialism. Now, postmillennialism suggests that the 100-year reign of Christ may or may not be a literal duration of time but it speaks to the glorious age prior to the second coming of Christ in which the gospel will have universal sway across the earth. And then there will be a final attempt of Satan to win the battle at the end of the age, and it will come basically to nothing. The resurrection and the judgment will then occur at the second coming of Christ. That's premillennial and postmillennial. A third that's often described is amillennial. The amillennial position was actually the dominant position for the church since the time of Augustine all the way through the Great Reformation and beyond. Um, until the 19th century, primarily, premillennialism under the influence of people like Schofield, the Schofield Reference Bible, gained a lot of influence among evangelicals, and in the 19th and 20th century, uh, premillennialism seems to have been dominant. But amillennialism, uh, with Augustine and others throughout the history of the church, describes it this way. The binding of Satan represents the victory of Christ over darkness, which has already been accomplished at the cross. The 1,000-year reign of Christ 
is in effect a figurative number for the reign of Christ symbolically in an indeterminate period of time, referring primarily to the church age following the coming of Christ in the first advent. Satan, according to this view, will be loosed to wreak havoc and persecute the church at the end of the present age. And then a general resurrection and judgment will occur at Christ's coming and then the advent of the new heaven and the new earth. So which one is correct? Well, I'd encourage you to take your pick. You can take your pick because actually in my estimation, it doesn't really matter a lot what your pick is. Surely there are elements of truth in all three. And it seems surely that none of them is absolutely correct, at least from my perspective. I think what is more important, what is more important is the major theme of chapter 19 and chapter 20 of the book of Revelation. The bigger picture, you might say. For those of you who are curious, and I know a lot of you are because you've asked me repeatedly what my perspective would be, if I was forced to choose, I would say amillennialism, because I think it probably comes the closest to describing what the true events of history are as described in the book of Revelation. But let's move beyond the theories, the interpretations, and the structures of timelines, and how it all fits together, and whether or not it's sequential. And let's move to the major theme of these two chapters, 19 and 20. There are two major events in these chapters that I want to focus on. The first is the wedding supper or feast, the wedding feast or supper of the Lamb. Now, remember this. We've been in the book of Revelation for some time now. And what you'll notice that preceded this passage and even what comes after this passage are some horrific details, details that are really unnerving, beasts that are multi-headed, beasts that look like several different beasts all wrapped into one. There's a red flashing dragon And there are two beasts that emerge out of the sea at the end of the age. These dramatic images are parallel to overlapping to a great feast. If you read through the book, you'll notice that the end has not yet come, at least according to chapter 19, until chapter 20. In the midst of all the chaos, there's an enormous feast the wedding supper of the Lamb. And the people who are at this feast are those who are the martyrs and the saints of the past and the saints that are present. They're celebrating Jesus Christ and his kingship. In the midst of these ghastly images, there is celebration and feasting. That might seem kind of odd. But actually, you've heard of it before. You remember these words from Psalm 23? Though I walk through the valley 
of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy or love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In the midst of enemies, enemies of God and enemies of his church, there is rejoicing, there is sting. My friends, when we embrace this, this dual reality of evil and feasting, we embrace the gospel. Because we embrace the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the midst of darkness and evil and death, and we celebrate it. You know, actually, we do that every Sunday morning in worship. And we especially do it on the first Sunday of the month when we have what many traditions call the Eucharist, when we have the Lord's Supper. We celebrate in the midst of chaos and sin the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are two extremes in these passages. One is feasting and celebration, celebration of the resurrection, and the other is judgment, final cataclysmic judgment. And they both need to be held in tension in order for us to be faithful to the gospel message. So the first is a feast in the midst of chaos. And then the second in chapter 20 is the final judgment, the destruction of evil. The idea of evil in the Bible is absolutely essential to understanding the larger story of salvation. I want to repeat that. The idea, the real idea, the reality of evil in the Bible is essential to understanding the story of salvation. Or put it another way, the story of grace. You don't want one without the other in the Scripture You have both. You know how it all begins. Far before John wrote the the book of Revelation, it begins in the beginning, in Genesis, where everything is created perfectly good. And into this story comes a serpent who we know is Satan, and he destroys the good thing that God has made. How does he do it? By a frontal assault? No, by deception. Deception is so sinister. It's always the way sin enters the world and chaos ensues. It's the lie of Satan. Deception then, now, and in the future 
is always the same. The deception of Satan is to contort what is good into evil. Let me remind you of something you know. When God created this earth, with all its inhabitants, at every stage of the game, he said, and it was good. There is nothing in all God's creation that does not fall under the category of good. God created it all. Satan takes what is good and twists it. Those of you who are readers of C.S. Lewis may remember that in his wonderful book called The Screwtape Letters, he describes a senior devil counseling a junior devil about how to allure a person who's a Christ follower away from Christ. And he says to him, let me remind you of something. With all our original research, we have never created one single pleasure. Pleasure is his idea. In other words, all we can do is to take the things that are good, the pleasure that God has created, and twist it and subvert it and contort it. That, in essence, is sin. So when we think about evil and we think about goodness, they're parallel to one another, just as a gigantic feast and the imminent destruction or the end are parallel to one another in these chapters. We must take a realistic view of evil in order to embrace grace. I remind you of the Lord's Prayer, which you know by heart. Lord, deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one because it's all around us. You know, the Hebrew word for salvation is a word that means to be broad, to become spacious, to enlarge. To be broad, to become spacious, to enlarge. What does this imply? It implies that salvation means to be delivered from an existence that is confined and narrowed, entrapped and compressed and cramped. God's salvation rescues us from the confinement of self and sin. And finally one day, the complete accomplishment of that restoration will take place when evil is defeated. Speaking of thanksgiving, I can't think of much more than that to be thankful for. To embrace the idea of salvation, you must accept the idea of catastrophe and helplessness in the human condition. The opposite of this is secular optimism. I love what Eugene Peterson wrote concerning this. He said, the world's alternative 
to a real understanding of evil and grace, the world's alternative is optimism. Optimism is a way of staying useful and being hopeful without having to have recourse to God. It requires, of course, a much reduced perception of catastrophe if it is to maintain credibility. Optimism comes primarily in two forms, moral and technological. The moral optimist thinks that generous applications of well-intentioned goodwill to the slag heaps of injustice and wickedness and the world's corruption, that it will be put to the world gradually, but surely, eventually, it will be made right. The technological optimist thinks that by vigorous applying of scientific intelligence to the problems of poverty and pollution and neurosis, the world will gradually but surely be put right. Neither form of optimism worships God. Although moral optimism sometimes provides ceremonial space for him, optimists see that there are few things left to do to get the world in good shape and think that they are just the ones to do it. This is a a powerful worldview, but it's completely naive. And I must tell you, reading this worldview, it sounds eerily similar to every political campaign in U.S. history. We think we have the answer. And we don't rely on God. And we don't acknowledge true evil. Because true evil requires divine salvation. I want to conclude with um, this thought. How do we approach our life in light of chapter 19 and chapter 20? I begin by going back to Thanksgiving. I mentioned Thanksgiving to you because it happens every year. I feast, and then I take a long nap. But following that nap, if I am a good husband, a good father, a good person, a good pastor, I return to the world. I don't continue to lay on the couch. I don't have a case, sirrah, sirrah, whatever will be, will be attitude about life. I go back out as a Christ follower, and I engage the battle. I go back out as a Christ follower, and I do my best to implement the kingdom of God. But it's okay to feast in the midst of the chaos. The already not yet kingdom of God is real. And in worship, We feast on the truth of the gospel as it reorients our perspective about life. 
Much of Revelation could be summarized as a different perspective on life, the past, the present, and the future. Next week, we're going to celebrate communion. It will be the first Sunday of the month. And when we do, we always say these words. We share the Lord's Supper remembering that in doing so, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The feast in the middle of the story. So first, how do we approach life? We enjoy the feast. We enjoy the promise of salvation. Second, how do we approach life? According to Jesus, we stay alert. You remember these words from Matthew chapter 24. When speaking about the end of it all, Jesus says, stay awake because you don't know on what day your Lord will come. He continues in that same passage and says that we ought to be ready and stay busy. Stay alert, says Peter. Be clear-minded and alert. Your opponent, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. So how do we wait? We wait by feasting. We wait by staying alert because Christ could come at any time. And we wait by staying busy. The work of God is to establish his kingdom on earth, his real kingdom on earth. And that work, it happens in our daily lives. And though I frequently am pejorative about politics, it happens in politics, it happens in justice, it happens in our courts. The real kingdom of God is among us, according to Jesus. We need to tap into it and be busy about the work of the kingdom. In the midst of all this pragmatic work, though, Jesus would remind us that we are not supposed to worship pragmatic idols or people because the final culmination comes with a loving and sovereign, sovereign Lord. So we're given a responsibility. Not to know when the end is. Not even to predict when the end is. We're given a responsibility, as Jesus says in the Gospels, to be good stewards. To be busy about the work of the kingdom until he comes. Because he will come. And he will make everything new. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you um, that we have the story. We thank you that we don't have to make it up. We thank you that we don't have to be unrealistically optimistic. We thank you that the solutions the final solution is not ours to discover or to implement. We thank you that you've given us a part to play, to be good stewards until you come. And when we are, we rest in your sovereign designs 
realizing that the battle is yours and you will make everything new. That is the hope that we cling to because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the hope that we remember again in Advent season, knowing that the first Advent gave us this perspective and that the second Advent will make everything new. For this we give you thanks. May we live awakened to your spirit and busy about the work that you've given us as we feast on your presence. In the name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.